Hi, and welcome to Talk Rehab. I'm Bill Nolting, and I want to first thank Quantum Rehab for their support and their help bringing this Nicole LaBerge episode to you today. Nicole LaBerge is a physical therapist and ATP at the Hennepin Healthcare System in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She specializes in seating and mobility assessments as well as working with traumatic brain injuries. In addition to being a very active clinician or practitioner, she's wrapping up a research project focused on the benefits of standing. She's active with the Clinician Task Force and recently accepted a position on the Executive Committee. Please join me for a great conversation with Nicole LaBerge, the only person I know with an ice rink in her backyard. Nicole, thanks for talking with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Please give us a little background. Who is Nicole? Sure. Um, I have been a physical therapist for over 15 years now. I knew pretty early on when I was in high school that I wanted to be a physical therapist, but interestingly, I um, thought I was actually going to be a therapist who maybe traveled with like a professional sports team. Um, and that is not at all where I ended up. I went to, well, I grew up in Northern Minnesota, almost Canada. I have grown up around, um, hockey my entire life. And I went to college in Duluth, Minnesota. So not a whole lot warmer from almost Canada, but a little bit. And when I was at college, I uh, was fortunate to have a couple really awesome professors in the neuro department who really opened my eyes to how amazing it is to be able to provide therapy and really change somebody's life in the fact that you are helping them to walk again or you're giving them their independence back. So I went on that route and my first job out of college was uh, at an outpatient clinic where I um, got recruited by my mentor at the time to join the seating and mobility team, not knowing anything about it. Within a few weeks of me joining that team, there was fortunately a little bit of a mass exodus and I was left as the only member of that team and about uh, over 40 patients to case manage their wheelchair needs. And I don't like inefficiencies. I um, Anybody who knows me can appreciate that I, I'd like to get things done and I like to do them really well. And so not knowing a lot of background I brought in a lot of my manufacturing reps and asked for in-services. I asked a lot of questions. Almost two years to the day uh, into my career, I sat for my ATP exam. It was back in the day when we were still doing paper and pencil. And um, I've been kind of just in the whole CD mobility world since then. So I have since worked at a couple different clinic and hospital systems. I actually, where I'm at right now, I worked inpatient in the hospital side for about three years. And then I left, took a little hiatus uh, to go back to my love of seating and mobility. And I am now, I just had my five-year return anniversary to my current clinic. And it's um, it's been fun. It's been really, um, you know... I, some people say everything happens for a reason, and I, I I agree. But I think at the time you never know, and here I am. It's been a lot of a lot of um, progress. Growing up in northern Minnesota around hockey people gives you a lot of opportunity to practice uh, physical therapy. I bet it <laughs> it does. Um, I you know 
initially I, I love to travel and I thought, what is a way that I can actually travel and um, get paid to do that? And so I thought I'll just join a team and uh, be that person that helps them to get back to their sport and do it really well. It's it, it didn't turn out that way, but I still am appreciative of the fact that I get to travel and I get to do conferences and presentations and um, I get my I get my fix that way. Nicole, please explain the return anniversary again. I think I missed something. Uh, yeah, no, I actually, my return anniversary is to my hospital and my clinic system. Um, I work for a, um, a level one trauma center and clinic system called Hennepin Healthcare. And I, um, the first three years that I worked there, I was not doing outpatient um, CD and mobility. I helped the outpatient team, but it wasn't my prior like primary role there I, I left my first clinic that I had kind of got into the complex rehab world just from pure burnout and I thought you know what I love this is my passion but I, I I need to step away for a while it stayed with me and so going to the hospital system not being able to do as much seating and mobility as I wanted to I left to go to a different clinic at Hennepin we we say that everyone comes back and it's pretty legit. Um, I missed it and there was an opportunity for me uh, to come back and really grow the wheelchair clinic and the program and try to make it into something a little bit bigger. So I am back at that clinic system as of five years, but a total of eight years I have worked for that uh, company. I noticed that you're an ATP. How long have you been an ATP? 13 years. So I, I wanted to sit for my exam about a year into my career, but there's rules against that. <laughs> the criteria to sit is at that time, you know, it, and I believe it still is that you have at least two years of experience. So a uh, physical therapist for 15 years and uh, ATP for 13. I think we mentioned this the other day when we talked, you're not a NARTS registrant. I shouldn't be, but I'm still fuzzy about that. Yeah. Um, I could be a, a friend of um, NARTS, but because I am a clinician, um, I am that physical therapist, I I can't actually be a full registrant. That makes sense. Hmm. Because of some NARTS rules? Yes, um, because that is for uh, suppliers. And so it I can be a, a friend, but I can't actually uh, take on that credentialing. Tell me what your day is like when you get to the clinic in the morning. My days right now, I work uh, four days in the clinic and then I have one day that um, I have the ability to work on research. And so my days are right now for my patient caseload are actually pretty heavy with um, wheelchair evaluations and treatment sessions. I just started within the last couple of years working very hands-on with our sacral wounds clinic. So I am doing wound care and then um, maybe about 25% of my caseload is just what the physical therapist world would call kind of like typical neuro. So a stroke, a amputee, a patient who's coming and their goals are not maybe wheelchair related. They're just um, working on rehab. Do you do your evals independently without a supplier or do you have an RTS on hand during the evals? I have done both. Um, when I came back to my clinic, I kind of asked uh, my teammates if they would be okay with me changing up kind of how we did some some of our 
um, systems and processes. And so we used to have um, that RTS be present right away in the evaluation. And we no longer do. Our first evaluation is that physical therapy evaluation. We get an hour with our patients to really sit, meet them, evaluate them, and kind of identify their needs. I feel strongly about that because we do have a really good process and how to communicate with our suppliers um, what is the next step that's needed. For me, I've I have learned that sometimes patients come in and they've either had a really great experience with their supplier and they want to continue to use them. And that's awesome if they are there at the same time, but sometimes they haven't and they want to be able to give that feedback kind of in a non-biased way without having that person or that company sitting there. So we do a full hour just getting to know them, kind of talking about goals. And I also like that, you know, trying to get everything crammed into one hour with you have two professionals, you know, whether that supplier is being like, I got to figure out a home demo, or I'm trying to just do my clinical part of it. I feel like it's not as rich and the patient gets really overwhelmed. So I'll do my evaluation, but then um, I'll also set up follow-up sessions for them to come back in and we can continue to work towards whatever their, whatever their needs are. It sounds like hennepin might be a little heavier into adults than peds. Yes, um, we absolutely we do offer services um, to our pediatric population, and actually the pediatric department in the outpatient um, setting is on the same floor as me in my clinic. But for the most part, I would say we are seeing um, for seating and mobility, we're seeing uh, about fourteen to sixteen years and older. The wound care thing throws me a little. Isn't that a bit of a departure from seating and mobility? Oh, Bill, no, it goes so hand in hand. A couple of years ago, I had a provider, a nurse practitioner, who was putting referrals into physical therapy because um, she was doing managing the wound care and she knew that something needed to be fixed, whether it be their cushion or their just their whole chair. And so she was sending um, referrals, which were ending up on my schedule. And because I am typically so busy and so booked down as in like six weeks to get an appointment with me, that, that was how it used to be. I wouldn't get these patients into the clinic until six weeks after her referral. And then my next follow up would have been six weeks beyond that. So you have, you know, a wound need at day one, and then now I'm not getting anything switched out for them until like week 12. Wow. Like that, that to me is, is an issue. So, um, her and I sat down and I kind of, I kind of said, please let me come to your clinic and be part of it. Mm -hmm. And they were, <laughs> her and her nurse were very, um, hesitant at first. And, oh, if they, if you guys listen to this, uh, Jackie and Kathy, thank you for letting me in the door because, um, now, um, we are like a well-oiled team. It works so beautifully. I am actually able to be in that clinic and we can do the wound care. I can start the pressure mapping that day that the patient comes in. I can do a full assessment of what they have for their equipment. And then I can also reach out to their supplier and say, hey, can you get out to the house or the bed's not working and all those support surfaces that the patient could potentially be sitting on and having pressure issues with. Now I can start from day one. Um, and so that has been something that we have really grown and has worked amazing. And now um, I feel pretty darn appreciated when I'm in that clinic because they get to focus on just that case. The, they get to do the wound part um, and the dressings and the ordering. I get to do some more of the equipment. What 
happened just because of this year. Um, and thank you with the pandemic. And we had a couple of our main players in that clinic retire. And so the nurse practitioner I work with right now, her and I, um, instead of going from multiple clinic days a week, we've were were limited. So I, um, doing wound care within the scope of physical therapy is well within our practice. And so in order to meet our patients' needs, and get them in and get them um, evaluated and get their dressings and all their supplies ordered. I have started to do some of that wound care on my own, but still under the wing of my nurse practitioner. So um, if they come in and they're having an issue with their wheelchair, I get to see them, can relay that immediately, whereas they might be only seeing that nurse practitioner once a month. Are you seeing any wounds or trauma as a result of a wheelchair accident? Well, an actual like accident, like where somebody got hit by a vehicle sometimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, um, sometimes. Uh, for the most part, um, it is a sacral wound clinic that I work on of. So we're looking at anything that is on that pelvis. But we'll also look at feet, thighs, things that could have happened from an actual accident. But typically, the, the skin issues are coming from either pressure or shearing. I think you told me the other day that you accepted a position with the Clinician Task Force on the Executive Committee. I did, yeah. I have been a member of the Clinician Task Force for, I believe it's about two years now. That group, I mean, you, phenomenal, phenomenal people. I initially really wanted to be part of it just because uh, within my state and even within my like local kind of area in the Twin Cities, I I feel strongly about advocating for our patients. And so to be able to um, actually get to a bigger level and to have kind of a, a national outreach was something that I was thrilled to be part of. Yeah, so then I was uh, nominated and I accepted. So starting in January, I will be on the executive board of that task force. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's a very cool organization. It's, it's amazing. How has the coronavirus affected your practice? <laughs> uh, it's It's been... An interesting year. I'm going to try to stay uh, positive because I think, unfortunately, we have so much negativity that gets put out into into the media. It's been interesting. I, my leadership at our hospital clinic they they understood from day one. You know, getting a wheelchair, getting that equipment. It's a it's a complicated process and it takes a long time. And so. We, within my team of neurotherapists who do the wheel, cherry valves, we never stopped seeing our patients. Um, we've been open since March, kind of doing our, doing our thing just with a lot of PPE on. We did get, uh, we had a great opportunity to communicate with our providers, our doctors, our physicians, and just make sure that the people that were coming in were safe to be seen in clinic. I feel so fortunate in that teamwork that we have not only within the therapist, but also our, like I said, our providers. And so that just increased our communication and knowing that we were having them come in for the shortest amount of time that we could, but that the whole process to get them their equipment would be done uh, smoothly. I, it also really, I mean, the whole fact that now I can hop on and do a telehealth visit and I can see my patients in their homes and I can have my suppliers there to help with these evaluations and I can do things remotely has been absolutely fabulous. So 
I feel very fortunate. That's a silver lining. That's not something that our hospital system did before um, COVID. And that's where we are now. But I also, I also think that, you know, it's just, everybody is just feeling the stress. Everything is extra. And so it's, it's been a lot. There's been a lot of um, just tired, tired days. A lot of people are saying that one silver lining that might come from the whole coronavirus thing is the advent and popularity of telehealth. And I believe that's true. T- tell me how that's affected you guys at Hennepin. Yeah, um, we were not one of the um, the first kind of clinic systems to get on board with the telehealth compared to maybe some of our other local hospitals and clinics. And um, I know that was kind of a... <laughs> Some of my suppliers were a little frustrated. They're like, how come you guys aren't doing your video visits yet? And I and I, I understood it from kind of our higher ups in that um, they wanted to do it well. They wanted to do it legally to, and they wanted to make sure that we were actually getting reimbursed for our time. And so um, it trickled down. Our, our providers, our doctors and physicians got to kind of start with it first. But um, once it kind of they gave us the option with therapies to be able to do it, it's just been kind of opening up this amazing door for us um, so that we can. I, I just there's always been this piece that was missing. I felt I would do my evaluation. I'd have my patients in clinic. They would get the opportunity to try pieces of equipment with me. But then I was so dependent on my suppliers to tell me how did that home trial go and some of some of them are absolutely amazing great pictures and details and some of them would just be like that eh, went great mm-hmm. so it's hard for me to write a justification for something that I, I don't have all those details on and when I can just see like oh this is why in your bedroom you have to do this style drive for your power wheelchair I get it now because I'm actually visualizing it so it, it's been I think a, an amazing um, blessing for us Sounds like you're a Minnesota native. <laughs> do I do I sound like I'm from Fargo, Bill? Do I have the No, you, you don't <laughs> you do not. But you said early you said early on you're from northern Minnesota. I am. I am I am from Minnesota. Um, northern Minnesota. I could drive a four wheeler before I could drive a car. Um, I I laugh when people in the southern states tell me it's cold and it's fifty degrees because I mean that's like still hot for us. Yes, I'm. I'm really. I'm as much as I love to travel and I love my warmth. I'm really proud of our state. I can also tell you I'm really proud of the healthcare and the education that the state of Minnesota offers. We're, we do some pretty amazing things up here. I haven't spent a lot of time in Minnesota, but the few times I was there, I enjoyed it. Anyway, how large is your clinic? Hennepin Healthcare with our hospital, which is actually the Hennepin County Medical Center, and then our satellite clinics, including where I work, which is the Clinic and Specialty Center, which is literally right across from our emergency room and our hospitals. Um, We have 7,000 employees. My actual physical therapy clinic that I work out of, uh, any given day, we have about 30 physical therapists that are working. And right now, our neuro team is up to seven physical therapists. And those are the ones who do the wheelchair seating evaluations. I guess you know Kathy Carver pretty well. Kathy, gosh, she's our she's been our fearless leader. Uh, she and I got to work much closer this past year on a project for um, the Item Coalition in which she recruited me to 
join uh, the clinical group in that project, and it's been fun. Um, it, she's just she's got so much wisdom, and I appreciate her um, organization, her advocacy, and just I don't. I, there's so many talented people in our industry and it's so fun to just sit and have those experiences where you can chat and learn. You see adults. How do you help a first time adult wheelchair user navigate through the maze of uncertainty? I do. I do see a lot of um, first time wheelchair users. You know, I think it, it depends on the maze and giving them the resources when they're able to understand it, but also being available to answer the questions um, that maybe they might not feel comfortable asking other people. I'm very passionate about getting our patients, our clients, what they need as soon as we can, but also making sure that they're aware of all of the options that are out there so that they do have an educated decision. Um, Because it's not you know, it's not my decision. I'm not the one who is sitting in that wheelchair or standing in that wheelchair. I'm I'm trying to help them out so that, you know, they're entering this world of they used to they used to be walking. They used to not need any of these um, services. Now they are. So um, giving them the opportunity to try to try as much as they can, not only in clinic, but also, um, you know, giving them a good actual home trial so that they can Um, see what it's going to be like in their environment. And then I feel strongly that you can't just write a letter and deliver a chair and expect that the patient is going to be able to use it or even fit in it well. In 15 years of doing wheelchairs, I can say less than less than five to 10% of the time does that wheelchair come out of the box um, exactly how we wanted it. And so I feel like getting those clients back in to the clinic, doing the fittings, the programming adjustments, just so that that process is great for them, that they can say, you know, I've used this for a while and I don't like how this is working and to just not kind of keep them dangling. Cause we see so much equipment abandonment, right? It's like the people who don't come back or they got their first chair, they didn't know there was other options out there, or they thought this is just how it's supposed to be, you know? And so that's the other, like, well, what do you mean? I'm not supposed to sit like this. Well, no, but if that's how the chair was delivered to them and no one ever followed up, um, that, that can really make them frustrated. And then they show up five years later and they're, I hated this chair. Well, why didn't you say anything? I didn't know I could. That, that is my goal is that, you know, not only give them the options that are out there and try to help them to navigate that, but to make sure that once they get it, they truly love, um, what they received. I'll be right back with Nicole in just a minute, but first I want to share just a snippet of an interesting conversation I had with Mike Vandeveer. Senior Director of Quantum R&D. Welcome, Mike. Listen, how do you guys decide what to work on next? I know you have roundtable meetings with wheelchair users and therapists and ATPs. What goes on in those meetings? And extremely overwhelming in a good way. The engineers get them in the room with them, just an absorption of ideas. It is information overload in, in very much in a good way when I say that. Um, you know, the, the ideas that come out of that, you know, those, you know, sort of small core groups, some of them are, you know, off the wall, crazy ideas, but a lot of them end up sticking, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. And there's always, you know, the room for, you know, small improvements here or there. It's it's the out there ideas that, you know, you know, that one person has and then, you know, three or four other people have it. Like, oh, yeah, that's the exact same problem I see. I just I didn't realize that it was really that big of a problem. All of a sudden it takes off. 
Well, I think I'd like to do a whole episode on that topic. How about the Stretto? How much development involvement did you have with the Stretto? As much as any R&D team can have. The Stretto, uh, the Stretto is a unique story. The Stretto was actually kind of brought up from our international uh, international group. Started off as they, they they saw a need for a smaller unit, specifically in in you know some of the older buildings in Europe. You know your standard twenty four inch unit just wasn't going to cut it. Could you make it work? Probably, but it wasn't wasn't ideal. So that's where the idea of the Stretto was actually kind of born, was to come up with a smaller, narrower unit that could get into older buildings in, in Europe. From there, it took off, you know, grew into, you know, multiple different kind of faceted projects, um, not just from, you know, a European unit, but really, you know, where the kind of the, the segue into a pediatric, uh, you know, base, which we're kind of, you know, going towards now. Overall, the Stretto is, you know, near and dear to my heart. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that we were, we were able to do with that, you know, from an independent rear suspension, uh, which is a big step forward for us. How we're able to do eye level, so it's a real big difference. The front doors on there, excuse me, all the doors, battery doors, front and rear on there. It's something that we've really been, I know Jay's been, we've been asking about that for a really long time, just from an accessibility standpoint. This makes, you know, makes... People that have to use the unit and really work on the unit life that much easier to be able to access the doors front and back. Just accessibility becomes that much less of a challenge uh, on getting to stuff. Uh, but yeah, overall, uh, you know, R and D R and D took that project near and dear to our hearts for you know a few years there. Um, we're, we're thrilled to see it come to fruition, and, and very very proud of how it turns out. And did the Stretto launch first in Europe? No, no, we launched uh, we launched first in the U.S. Actually, Europe was Europe was right behind though. Mike Vandeveer with Quantum Rehab. I could spend hours talking to him, and I probably will. Let's get back to Nicole LaBerge. Nicole, how do you stay current with new products, new developments? Just like uh, current with like the um, education or like what's going on in the industry? Yeah, really all of that. But mostly, how do you stay current with innovations in assistive technology? Um, well, back when we could travel, uh, <laughs> I, I love... Um, I am an extroverted extrovert, so I just get so recharged being around people and being in conferences and expo halls are like, I just, it's something I love. Um, and for the, those that ever are in there, they'll be like, Nicole can stand on a booth and talk for like two hours, which is true. But I, you know, everything has kind of gone virtual this last few months. And so I, I am that nerd. I take these um, webinars, I take these um, educational opportunities that are done so that, you know, whether I'm listening to it on demand or I'm, you know, doing something around my house and I have it on my, you know, my phone streaming. Um, I also, I do rely pretty heavy on my manufacturing reps and I am grateful for the ones that are in my area um, because if I see something or I get some literature or something for um, advertisement with um, a new product that's coming out and I reach out to them and I say, hey, do you have one? Can I see it? Can you bring it in? And then they will tell you that one usually ends up staying at my clinic because that's who I am. I ask for the moon, um, but they're good to me. But then I have the opportunity to share that knowledge with my coworkers um, because, you know, I like to think that everybody's as passionate about CE mobility as I am, um, but I don't think they are. And so they get a little bit of education and then they come to me if they have questions. Not counting the coronavirus, what do you think is the seating and mobility industry's biggest problem today? I think the biggest problem is that our funding sources are still funding as a reaction 
instead of being proactive. And I think that we are making progress with our funding sources, but I think that it's a challenge. I understand on the clinical side, you know, I want the best for my patients and I want them to have that equipment, but I also know that our industry has to stay in business. And so I I see the struggles and I see that we're not rewarded on the clinical side or even on the on the supplier side. We're not rewarded for doing a good job. It's it's <laughs> I feel the reward when my patient is happy and when they can do things for the first time and when they tell me like this piece of equipment, this whole process has made such a big difference in my life, but that's not how we are reimbursed and that that I feel like is a that is a problem. It's a struggle. Um, and just, you know, I can't say that the technology isn't out there. We have some crazy, amazing things that our industry is doing, but the access to it for some of our patients that especially, I mean, my my hospital, we more than 50% of our patients are on some sort of either federal or state funded um, insurance plan. So we're serving the underserved population and for that technology to be out there, but to not be able to actually get it to them because we don't have a way of reimbursing it, that to me is an issue. And what is the most exciting thing about CRT? What does the future look like? Oh, are you going to let me talk about standing bill? Can I say that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm very hopeful, and maybe it's just because it's my passion, and I've been doing this for years and years. I think the future of CRT is that we aren't we aren't reactive. I feel that the future is going to be we're proactive. We are getting patients the equipment, and that, to me, is that we see more of our population in standing power wheelchairs. We see them using that as part of their daily lives and not as the exception. That's going to be the majority. I know firsthand um, I've been helping patients of mine to get standing chairs paid for by insurance for almost 10 years now. And I can tell you that the amount of not only medical but functional benefits that they experience because they have that equipment underneath them. Um, it's just, it, it's amazing. But we we have these funding sources that say, you know, show me, show me the research, show me what is um, proving that other than just my candid um, accounts of my experiences every day. And so I think the industry is also going to continue to be filled with research and, and showing that what we've been talking about, what we've been really pushing for is actually what is needed. You mentioned earlier that you can get up in front of a group and talk for hours. What do you like to talk about? <laughs> I can. A couple hours. Um, I could probably talk all day. I really like to talk about um, standing and the benefits of it. I like to talk about my patients and, you know, I can... You can give me any, you know, give me this diagnosis or this diagnosis, and I've probably seen at least 10 of them. Um, And I can tell you the uniqueness and why I can be a little high maintenance when I'm asking for things to be maybe a little special ordered or things that are going to be set up differently on a future product in a piece of equipment. 
because I know how it's going to directly affect those who are using it. I love to talk about wheelchairs and <laughs> I love to educate those that maybe don't have the process down in their clinic or if they say, you know, this is my frustration. Do you have something that you've tried and is actually working better? And I, I probably do. And that's what's really exciting to me to just be able to share kind of what I've done in my clinic systems and my experiences and how other people could potentially put that into practice. And what are the coolest thing what is the coolest thing you've done as a as a physical therapist? The coolest patient or the best solution or the most fun interaction? Um Gosh, I, uh, if one stands out, yeah, I have so many, I can, I can tell you my most recent, my most recent aha, like this is, this is why you're doing this, Nicole. I, you know, a patient rolls into my clinic and if we're looking at a power wheelchair, I go through my inventory on, you know, like what is going on with you medically? What would you benefit from in a new chair? And my mind immediately goes to standing. You know, the benefits of getting somebody upright and helping with their um, their positioning and their bowel and bladder function and their ability to take a deep breath or to speak louder. And I had a patient um, recently who I started seeing in my wounds clinic. He um, has been in a spinal cord injury for 36 years his goal was that he needed a new wheelchair. We were talking about, you know, he's got a multiple wounds. How are we going to help with his skin integrity? He brought it up to me. I, I, my coworkers, my team, my area knows that I'm like, I love my standing, but he brought it up to me. And he said, what do you think about standing? And I said, ah, oh, well, um, I think it's a fabulous idea, but I listed off about six things that are going to be really challenging for just how this um, patient's history, um, his uh, range of motion, the things that like physically would allow us to stand him after 36 years of not standing. There was a lot of barriers, but I said, you know what, let's let's try it because I won't say no. We can always try. And if we fail, then we at least said we tried it. And so he um, came into clinic, got him kind of set up. He stood and he stood really well. It was emotional. It was emotional for him and his caregiver. Um, you know, he's he's trached. He's on extra oxygen. He's got wounds, you know, like the, all these things I could say in I think kind of what everybody maybe else is thinking like this would never work and it worked and it worked so beautifully and we're kind of going through the process that I do with my patients is that we try uh, we try the wheelchair in clinic we gather data we show how it's really making a difference for both medical and functional goals um, and we're hoping that we can get that equipment for him paid for so I have a lot of those moments. I have my patients who, you know, they get their equipment approved and, you know, they're like, I feel beautiful. Like I, I finally feel, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a beautiful person because I'm in this chair. Um, or it's the ones that you literally see on stage four, a, a very aggressive wound start really healing because of the equipment that you put them in. And you're like, huh, I guess this does work. I'm very, I'm very fortunate. My patients, they, for the most part, you always got those outliers, but they appreciate what I do. And I think that makes a big difference going to work and knowing that you are actually um, helping someone and then they, they appreciate that. That's huge. What does the future look like for Nicole? Oh, well, 
I can tell you I said for the last 10 years that I, um, before I retire, that Medicare will pay for power standing as a medical necessity before I retire. So I'm putting that into the universe again, Bill. I've been very fortunate to be working closely on this project this last year. And I think uh, we were closer than we ever have been for the industry. And that would be That'd be great. I mean, I could technically retire after that. I, I can't actually, but because I said that, I feel like I can. Um, so that would be, that's that's in my future. I will help that policy to get changed because I, I just feel strongly. I feel like it's something that we need, our patients need. I'd also, you know, I finished up my first research project uh, recently. And so I have goals to continue to um do some more research with my research institute that I am so wonderfully connected with now. Um, I don't know. I want to get back to traveling. <laughs> that sounds good. Before we wrap this up, tell me a little bit about that research. So for the past about year and a half, um, I've had the, well, I should say the honor because I'm, I'm pretty pumped that I can kind of take one of my visions and put it to research um, of working on a project that we actually kind of had to scale back. Um, I have been doing standing chairs for my patients for so long that in my heart, I felt like if we could just prove that um, giving the opportunity somebody to stand, then we can essentially reduce the cost of healthcare and make it kind of a little bit more black and white to our insurance companies that they should be paying for these devices. And so ideally, we wanted to go into the research and just start studying those that have standing chairs. And then we realized that there's kind of this gap in the literature that we know those that are sitting, those that are able-bodied and sitting all day are at higher risk for comorbidities such as heart disease and diabetes and cancers and even death. But there hasn't been this kind of all-cause study um, that looks at, you know, what happens to all of our patients, no matter their diagnosis, uh, when they sit all day. And we know that sitting happens in kind of a primary wheelchair user for more than eight hours a day. Um, so we decided to look at Initially, we had almost 900 uh, individual charts of patients to weed through, and we scaled that down to about 330 that met our inclusion criteria and um, looked retrospectively at all of the bad things that happen when you sit. Over what period of time? We looked at about one year prior to their physical therapy evaluation for a mobility device, and then one year afterwards. After after what? One year after? One year after that mobility evaluation. So we assumed that that would have given them enough time in order to receive their mobility device. And then we also made sure that they had received the recommended device. Um, otherwise, we didn't include them in our data. And what'd you find? <laughs> we found a lot. We found of the 10 comorbidities that we were looking at, we found that 100% of our population that we were studying had at least one of those. Um, the highest incidence that we did um, see was that 91% of our entire population had pain. 
Um, and over two thirds of the population that we looked at had at least three comorbidities. We also had looked at the incidence, so how many times this patient would go to the emergency room or urgent care, or how many times they had been hospitalized a year prior to that physical therapy evaluation and a year after. Um, and then we also dug into a little bit if they had a diagnosis of UTIs, urinary tract infections, how many of those did they have one year prior and one year after. So we, we did what we think is pretty unique, and I'm excited to hopefully get published and share with the world that, um, you know, it doesn't depend on the mobility device that you have. So if you're in a manual chair, a power chair, power chair with standing or a scooter, um, these bad things are still happening to you. When will you complete your research? The, the research part is completed. The writing up and submission uh, process and getting it published is in the works. We are we're crossing our fingers and hoping that somebody thinks that it's cool enough to say that they want to publish it. Um, and then we'll be moving on to the next uh, project, hopefully that we'll actually be looking specifically at those that st have the ability to stand in their power chairs and pulling some of the data that we've shown is prevalent and taking some very um, specific outcome tools. That, that seems to be, you know, insurance payers are looking for the numbers and the data and they want to know prove to me that this made a difference. And unfortunately, a lot of the literature and research that has been done previously doesn't have those hard facts. Um, so looking at what's been done in the past, what we just did recently, and then putting to it some pretty specific outcomes and measuring those in the population that can stand. Do you believe that your outcome, your findings supported your hypothesis? I do. I think that there's limitations to any study. I can I can say this. I, you know, as a therapist, I have this assumption that people come in and they have, uh, they have pain or they have spasticity. Those are things that I can measure during my evaluations, and they can report to me that this is happening. I was under the assumption that um, a lot of our patients have chronic UTIs, and I. I don't think that they actually do, or I think that they are occurring more frequently that our study could actually measure just by doing a chart review. So um, I, I do think so. I think that our main goal was to prove that sitting sitting sucks, <laughs> whether you're able-bodied or disabled. Right. Um, and I think that that is, that is going to be... Um, published. We just got to, we got to find the right home for it. So it'll be exciting when everybody can read it. That, that's interesting. And that's always the key. Uh, if, the, if the funding sources find that it actually costs them more not to solve a problem, then they'll end up doing something probably. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the hope. And I think it's, it's playing this, um, playing this game of, you know, what we know as we're out there and we're interacting with these patients and we see and we hear the studies. And then we also, um, we see the benefits of when they get the right piece of equipment, oh, how life-changing that can truly be. And, you know, then the the insurance companies are saying, show me. Um, and, and they're not researchers, you know, the insurance, these payer sources are, they, they want the data, but yet they, they're not funding the research, not funding for that data. So trying to play that game, get it out there so that it's available, um, it, it's, 
it's a process, but I think we're, we're making, we're making gains and it's exciting. Who else are you working with on this research project or, or on wrapping it up, I guess? Yes. Um, so I, I can give a big shout out to my, uh, my dear friend, Ashley Detterbeck, uh, who has spent many hours helping me dig through those initial 900 charts that we looked at. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we get, we got pretty efficient after, you know, the first, we cheered each other on after like, woohoo, we did a hundred. And then at the end it was like, oh my goodness eyes crossing. Um, and then we do have somebody who is over in Sweden who has been helping us with all of the um, statistics. Her name is Carla, and she's also one of the most delightful people to work with. How long did it take you to first weed down the 900 charts into the 330 that qualified and then to actually go through it all? How long were you at this project? Oh, Bill. So, you know, from start to finish, um, I can't actually give you like a, a month's time just because there was some breaks in it. And then it was also, um, you know, we had to set some deadlines. It was, it was hours. It was, it was lots and lots of hours. Um, but I think the reason that it took so much at initially to kind of weed through it is because we wanted to collect as much data that we could the first time. And so, you know, you're looking at a chart and, and it's looking at not only their diagnoses and their referrals and their physical therapy evaluation notes, but then you're also having to go back and count, you know, one year prior and one year after. And so using um, the documentation system that my healthcare, my hospital uses, it, some of the some of the perks were that you know like an ER visit or um, a hospitalization, those notes are in red. So you know sitting there and counting and going through that did take a while. Um, but just looking at the diagnoses and if somebody had pain, um, that didn't take so mm -hmm. much. So it was a lot. Um, I think just getting the summary statements together and actually looking at those statistics and figuring out like, okay, did we actually prove, like you just asked, what we were hoping to? That was actually the fun and not as much of an intense um, part of the project. Did you have any HIPAA issues or did you need to get some HIPAA authorizations to look at people's charts? Oh, yes, of course. So um, in order to start the project, um, which, you know, this is, I'm a clinician. I am not, um, I'm not just a researcher. So being able to do research in my days when I'm not actually in the clinic, um, I had to do a lot of the background stuff on my own. And I say on my own, just like I have some resources for me, um, but I was connected with my uh, research institute, which is the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute. And I, I had to submit an actual formal um, IRB proposal. So that proposal on what I want to do for my research has to go through the process internally. It has to be reviewed by my research board, accepted that what I'm doing is protecting patient information, that I'm not disclosing anything that is not allowed, per se, um, and that it's an ethical study. So that all was completed prior to actually starting the work on the research. Who supported or funded the project? So I have a grant, <clears throat> excuse me, a grant that was funded from Permobile that is through my research institute. So um, it's pretty cool that I am able to technically be a researcher for one day a week and a clinician for four days a week. And my research institute um, then receives that payment uh, from their grant 
uh, through Permobil. What is your research institute? So the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute is a um, a wing under the Hennepin Healthcare um, System. So they are a freestanding research institute. Um, if you are ever interested, you can go to their website, and there is a, an amazing amount, hundreds of research studies that are going on continuously throughout our entire healthcare system. Um, you know, I'm one. One of the few physical therapists I think that has ever even kind of dived into research for um, our our hospital. But oh my goodness, we have you know emergency medicine doctors, we have our ICU doctors who are like we have other departments within our hospital that are actively researching and getting published and. I mean, right now, like to see my coworkers who have been caring for COVID patients the last, you know, 10, 11 months are also putting out these papers and are connected with multiple um, other sites across the world on, you know, just like what's the best medicine for COVID care. So um, the Research Institute, the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute is its own um, separate identity, but it is um, part of its, uh, the health healthcare system that I work for. That makes sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. How's the ice rink in the backyard? It is so good. Um, my, <laughs> I, 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 um, you know, I, I've, I've shared that the irrational decision of purchasing it um, has now been rationalized. Uh, my, my three-year-old was out only her fourth time on skates and um, she is, she is skating by herself. Um, she's kind of She's kind of destined to. She's got a co- hockey coach father and a physical therapist mom. Um, so, you know, we're like, head up, you know, keep breathing. We're keeping her positive. But um, the kids are out there every day. And, you know, it's it's Minnesota. We've been so fortunate. The universe has given us, like, the most pleasant winter so far. I think they are. Great. Yeah. So it's been, um, you know, 20 degrees and the kids are out and they're sliding and then throw on the skates. So. It's good. Thank you for asking. And that sounds like a good place to wrap it up. Nicole, thank you for your time and your story today. Thank you, Bill. This was so fun. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. There you have it. Nicole LaBerge, physical therapist, ATP, researcher, hockey fan, clinician task force executive committee member, and she doesn't appear to be letting up anytime soon. Once again, I want to thank the good folks at Quantum Rehab for helping bring this episode to you. That's all for now. I'm Bill Nolting. Thanks for listening.